for joining us. We are just so honored you'd be here with us for the first time, either on site or if you're joining us for the first time online. We just want to say welcome. Whether this is your first time on site with us here or you're tuning in for the first time online, we're simply a church that has a mega vision, a vision of a Los Angeles in which every single person has been changed, deeply formed and deeply changed by the life-changing power of the gospel. And so we gather here to hear the gospel, to, to sing and to hear from the scriptures and take communion and confess our sins. And we think that as we do that, we begin to grow in faith. We put more of our hope, more of our trust, more of our allegiance in Jesus. And as we do that, he begins to shape us into the kinds of people that go out and serve the world. We serve one another here on Sunday mornings and via our community groups. We serve the city through our local partners on things like serve days and beyond. And this church actually has a really rich legacy of sending people to the furthest parts of the earth to serve people all over the world with this life-changing power of the gospel. And so as we gather here and we begin to open the scriptures, we're kind of in this post-Christmas, post-Epiphany, pre-Lent season. The church historically has called it maybe a season of Epiphany, maybe Christmas tide, uh, but it's this idea that Jesus has been revealed to the world. We've gone through the, the hiddenness of his birth, of his incarnation, and now he's been revealed, and he's doing miraculous signs and works and teachings, and so we're looking at that as we prepare ourselves for Lent. Lent for us becomes 40 days of this slow march to the cross where we end at Holy Week for the final days of Jesus, his death on the cross, and ultimately Easter. And so if you've been with us for some season, we began this last fall with the Minor Prophets series. As we looked at the Minor Prophets, speaking to Israel about a Messiah that would come. Christmas, again, being the arrival of Jesus into the world. And now here we are in the Gospel of John, looking at the works and the words of Jesus. Now, when we make it to the Gospel of John, John makes it really, really clear why he has written this Gospel. He's very meticulous about the events and the details of Jesus' life. And he says that he writes this book that you might believe in the Messiah, that you might believe in Jesus, the Son of God. Why? That you might have life in his name. Man, it's good news that when we come to Jesus, when we come to faith, we aren't just coming to religion. We aren't just coming to ancient scriptures. We are coming to life itself. And so this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 12, verses 37 to 50. If you're asking the question, man, haven't we been in John chapter 12 for a long time? The answer is yes. It's a very, very long chapter. And so as you flip to John chapter 12, verse 37 on your smartphone or your paperback Bible, this is just a recap of where we've been in the gospel of John. We've been in this, this moment which Jesus performs maybe his most miraculous miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. After he does that, some of the, the leaders of Israel begin to plot on how they're going to kill Jesus. Jesus is then anointed at Bethany. He makes it to Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday, which we observed last year. Uh, last week, Trevor did a phenomenal job talking about Jesus predicting his death. And here we are in John chapter 12, verses 37 to 50. 
And this is really John's final moment with the reader before he goes into Jesus' last weeks and last days. Here John is going to summarize a few things. One, he's going to summarize after all of the words and works of Jesus that some people just refuse to believe. In other words, some people are blind to believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And as a result, they're going to miss out on life in his name. And then he's going to transition to a moment in which he says, not everyone's blind to it. Some believe, but they're just not quite willing to confess out loud to their peers, in their community, in their synagogue, that they in fact have crossed that threshold of faith. And then John is going to finish out this moment with the final words of Jesus before he essentially goes into hiding with his disciples for the Last Supper and the events that follow. And so before we get started, I just want to start with this. Man, I I lament that the 90s are over. I was a 90s kid through and through. I loved 90s music. Unfortunately, I loved 90s fashion. And I loved 90s companies. Companies that when I say them out loud, you'll think, oh, yeah, I remember them. Like Blockbuster. Man, when I was a kid, Blockbuster was a phenomenal company. A part of spending the night at your friend's house was a journey to Blockbuster in which you might spend an entire hour with your friends discerning which movie are we going to rent, take home, and return the next day before noon or else you're charged a late fee. Another company, Borders. Borders was this fantastic bookstore you used to be able to walk through. They developed a music section in which you could go and put on headphones and they had five CDs on display. And you could pick which CD you wanted to listen to and which track before you purchased that CD. And finally, J.C. Penney. This wasn't one of my stores. I think it was my mom's store. But she loved going to J.C. Penney at the local mall. And one of the things all three of these companies have in common, Blockbuster, Borders, J.C. Penney, is they are no more. And it's so sad. And the reason they are no more is simple. They just simply refuse to see the future as it was going to be. In other words, they were were so ingrained and they were so entrenched in the way that they were doing things, they refused to see that business could be done otherwise. In other words, in Tulsa, there was a, a blockbuster just about a mile from my house. And right across the street, there was a Walmart grocery store. And inside the Walmart grocery store, uh, there was a thing called a Redbox, which I don't even know if they're around anymore. But Redbox was the idea that you could come, you could rent a movie, you could take it home, and you could bring it back whenever you wanted to. You just had to pay a dollar per day. The beauty of Redbox was you could go there 24-7. You didn't have to get there when Blockbuster opened or make it in before they closed. Now, if you're Blockbuster, you're thinking, man, that sounds like a great idea. Pretty simple for us just to create a blue box and put it up outside of our store, and people can come at any hour of the day to get a movie. Instead, Blockbuster decided, no, we've been around long enough. Nothing can take us down. In the same way, Borders, Amazon comes along and begins to sell books online, and Borders thinks, no one's really going to buy books online. We're a staple. We're everywhere. People prefer to come to the store. And before you know it, 
Amazon puts borders out of business. A similar story with JCPenney. The online world of shopping has created chaos amongst in-store retailers. And, and the sad story for Blockbuster and for Borders and for folks like JCPenney is the writing was on the wall. They could have seen this coming. It wasn't a surprise to them. They had the opportunity to see culture shifting, to see technology shifting, to see consumer habits shifting and say, hey, we've got to freshen up the way that we do things. We have to begin to see the world differently. Instead, they allowed themselves to be blinded to what was going to be because they were so used to what was. When we get to the beginning of John chapter 12, what we find is in Israel, a majority of folks that have allowed themselves to become blinded to the way things were going to be because they were so fixated on the way things had been. This is John chapter 12, verse 37. It says this, even after Jesus had performed so many signs, notice those words, so many signs. When you talk to commentators, they'll say, behind this word is a hint of not just a quantity of signs, but also a quality of signs. In other words, the signs that were being performed were undeniably miraculous. Because John here doesn't refer to so many teachings or so many parables or so many words of wisdom. John talks about a quantity and a quality of miraculous signs that have been done where? In their very presence. These Jewish leaders have seen these signs with their very own eyes. This isn't hearsay. This isn't the community coming back to them to tell them what they saw Jesus doing. These are leaders that had seen it for themselves. And it says, even when they saw the signs, they still did not believe in what? In him. In other words, the, the leaders aren't denying the, the quantity of miracles. They're not denying the quality of signs. They're not even denying that Jesus did them. They're just denying that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. They're denying the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. And so John continues in verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If we had time to go back in Isaiah and read this small verse in context. This is a section of Isaiah that's talking about the, the suffering servant. And it's talking about a suffering servant in language that Israel fundamentally wanted to reject. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted a leader. They wanted a son of God that was going to be powerful, that was going to sit on a throne, that was going to vanquish his enemies. And when Isaiah's talking about the suffering servant, he talks about it in such a way that would have been unsettling for Israel. It was a leader that was going to suffer, go through pain, be in hardship. And Isaiah says, Lord, I, I'm talking about this suffering servant, 
but who's believed this message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Uh, some ancient commentators talk about the arm of the Lord being Christ himself. In other words, God does all of his work through Christ. And who has seen the arm of the Lord? Who has seen Christ as he's actually going to be? John continues quoting from this prophet. For this reason they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes. He's hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, lest I would heal them. What a beautiful picture of God at the end of that. That it's God's desire, it's his will, it's his hope for his people that none would perish, but that he'd heal them. Heal them from their sin, from their destructive patterns, from their wicked ways. Uh, verse 41 continues. As Isaiah said, Isaiah said this, because he saw Jesus' glory. And Isaiah was actually speaking about Jesus. I want to spend just a moment as we talk about uh, some people are blind to who Jesus is. This verse 40 can be a little troubling for us. This idea that he has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts. You know, when the early church fathers would talk about this, they would talk about it in such a way that Israel had blinded itself because of its preconceptions, because of its own fixation on what they wanted to happen. This is how uh, some of the church fathers speak about it. It says this, he, meaning God, he does not say that this, this uh, doing of virtue is impossible for them. In other words, God hasn't made it impossible for Israel to practice virtue, but that because they would not practice virtue, therefore they cannot practice virtue. Augustine continues to say it this way, this also I reply, their very will, the direction of their heart deserved this hard-heartedness and this blindedness. For God thus blinds and hardens simply by letting alone and withdrawing his aid. This is the only way that it can be. That when God gives aid to his people, when he helps them to see and he helps them to understand, he is acting mercifully. And when we, we, he withholds his aid, he is acting righteously. For in everything God does, he does not act rashly, but in accordance with judgment. And finally, Chrysostom finishes with this. God says these things, showing that we begin the desertion away from God, and we become the reason for our own destruction. In other words, in the same way that the writing was on the wall for Blockbuster, the writing was on the wall for borders. The writing was on the wall for Israel. The idea of the suffering servant was there for all of Israel to read and to reflect on 
and to meditate on and to begin to get inside the chambers of their heart, maybe the Messiah is going to look differently than we think he is. Instead, Israel opted not to reflect on the suffering servant but to reflect on the Psalms and the prophecies that talked about Messiah on a throne and vanquishing their enemies. It reminds me of a, a trip to Six Flags my family went on back in the day. We were in Dallas, Texas, and we were hoping to go to Six Flags, and we had this dream of what the day was going to look like, and it was going to look exactly like this day. Sunny, beautiful, partly cloudy. The night before, we checked the weather forecast and noticed, oh, it looks like it's going to rain tomorrow. But you know what? Weather in the Midwest is, it's fickle. It's not really going to rain. And so the next morning we wake up and begin our way to Six Flags and we stop by to get some gasoline. Some folks notice we have some Six Flags shirts on and hats. And hey, you guys going to Six Flags? Yep, we're going to Six Flags. We're going to ride the Texas Giant. You know it's supposed to rain today. That's what they say, but we don't really think it's going to rain. And then we end up at Six Flags, and before we even go into the gate, the folks say, hey, you know, we're offering people that are visiting a, a chance to redeem their ticket for later on. Uh, it's forecasted rain, and it's getting darker and cloudier, and we say, no, it's not going to rain. We, we have our, our vision fixated on what this day is going to look like. And sure enough, we spent the whole day in the arcade because it was raining outside. It's this idea that our family had become so fixated on we wanted it to look like that we were blind to what all the signs were telling us. I think when it comes to the teachings of Jesus, we do a similar thing. We blind ourselves to his words when he says, love your enemies. We blind ourselves when Jesus tells us to forgive those who do wrong against us. We blind ourselves to the idea that Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be greatest of all, you have to be servant of all. What we often do is we blind ourselves to those teachings because they make us uncomfortable. This is one of the reasons I love community groups. Because when we get in community groups, we, we get in circles of you know, six, 10, 12 folks, and we open the scriptures together and we begin to read the scriptures and we begin to talk about the scriptures. And for some of us, we've gone through a process of 10 years of blinding ourselves to what Jesus is actually really trying to tell us. And somebody next to us can give us fresh perspective. They can give us fresh language to what we're wrestling with. They can give words to some of the thoughts that we're having. In other words, being in community, reading scripture in community ensures that we don't become blinded by our own. This is how we want it to be. So as we go into John chapter 12, the first group that John is talking about is those that allowed themselves to become blinded to belief. Uh, the second is this. Um, the second is some believed, but... Notice John chapter 12, beginning in verse 42. Yet, at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. Not just his teachings, his signs, and his wonders, but they believed in who Jesus said he was going to be. But, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith. Why? For fear. Because they were afraid. 
afraid they would be put out of the synagogue. This idea of being put out of the synagogue is more than being put out of a church. If you think about being put out of a church on the west side, well, there's 20 other churches I can go to. But in the first century, when you talk about being put out of the synagogue, there's only one in your community. And it's far more than just a religious gathering. It's a communal gathering. It's the place you go where if you're down on your luck and need access to resources, that's where you go. If you want to be considered in and spend time with people outside of the synagogue, you also have to be in the synagogue. And if, if you're expelled from the synagogue, it makes the rest of your communal, social, economic life very, very difficult. Verse 43 for these folks that believed in Jesus but would not confess him for fear, it says they loved human praise more than praise from God. Uh, this reminds me, I was uh, one of the kids in uh, elementary school and middle school that sat in the back of the classroom. A few reasons. I was oftentimes trying to sleep during class. I don't recommend that, but I was trying to do it trying to hide in the back. Also wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, so didn't, didn't want to get called upon in class. Um, but also, I wanted to fit in with my peers. In other words, I noticed that some folks that would sit in the front and they would do their due diligence in, in studying and they would do their homework and they'd ask intelligent questions and give good answers, all the things that I recommend every student in here do. I would sit in the back because some folks might kind of poke fun at those folks. Say they were a, a teacher's pet, a smarty pants, a nerd, etc. All the things I wish I could be if I could go back. Instead, I, I sat in the back for fear of other people that I'd be called out. So I tried to blend in with the crowd. This is the same thing that's happening here. There's folks that have believed in Jesus. They've crossed that threshold of faith, but they are so scared of being called out, so scared of being singled out, so scared of being excommunicated from the synagogue that they just step back. They don't confess their belief, their faith, and their allegiance. Again, one of the church fathers, I think, says this and talks about it really well. He says, see how these men that believed in Jesus, see how they were broken off from the faith through their love of honor, through their love of approval, through their love of fitting in. It says that many of the chief rulers believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. And watch this. So then these chief priests, these rulers, were not really rulers at all, but slaves subject to the utmost slavery, the slavery of human opinion. So the question I was wrestling with this week is, who am I fearful of to confess my Christianity to? Who am I shy to confess my faith in Jesus too. It's certainly not people here in the church. It's oftentimes a barista, a server, somebody I just kind of run into where we office out of. Yeah, I, you know, I, don't, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to make anything weird that I'm a Christian. 
And so I want to ask you the same question. Who are you fearful of to confess Jesus to? For some of you, maybe a classmate, someone you're in class with. For some of you in a dating relationship, it may be somebody that you're dating. You really like this person. You're not quite sure they're on board. And so you kind of, when, when we go on a date, we don't, we don't talk about this. For some of you, it's a coworker or a boss or an employee. But whose honor, whose love, whose validation do you want more than that of God? And finally, this is such an interesting section. This begins verse 44. And you can imagine this is a, if you've been to a play before, this is a moment right before the curtain drops to go into act three. It's that moment in which the entire stage darkens and there's one spotlight in the middle and the main character is there in the middle and they open into a monologue which is going to set the stage for act number three. Because the last thing we have Jesus doing in verse 36, which Trevor talked about last time, was Jesus went to hide himself. And then John goes into the response of some of these leaders. And without any additional narrative surrounding this, John simply says, Then Jesus cried out. Some commentators say he's probably in the temple. His final words before he goes into the Last Supper with his disciples. And this word for cried out. It's so interesting because oftentimes when John talks about Jesus talking, it's the words, and Jesus said, and Jesus answered them, and Jesus said. And here John uses this very unique word, and Jesus cried out. Some definitions of this word in the Greek is, it's the idea of a raven crying out. Now, growing up in Oklahoma, I have a bedroom upstairs, and it's surrounded by trees, and these Beautiful little songbirds wake me up every morning. They're cooing and singing, and it's so peaceful. Now, if you've heard a raven crow, that'll get your attention. In fact, elsewhere in the Gospels, when this particular word is used, it's used of the demons crying out to Jesus. Jesus, have mercy on us. Don't, don't expel us. It's used of people that are sick trying to get Jesus' attention over the crowd. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me and heal me. This word is used of crowds trying to get the attention of politicians. No, free Barabbas. This word isn't a light word. It's a word that connotes volume and intensity. These are the final words to summarize the ministry of Jesus before he goes to the Last Supper. It says, then Jesus cried out, whoever not just Israelites, not just Gentiles, not just his disciples, but whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. You see, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me, is seeing the Father. You know, really quickly, that's why the Gospels are so important to us. When we read the Gospels, we get the sense that we are looking Jesus right in the face. And when we see Jesus, we see the Father. The Gospels are our clearest picture of who Jesus is. So whoever looks at me is seeing the Father. You see, I have come into the world as a light 
so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. This isn't some kind of gnosis, some kind of just knowledge. This idea of light is this idea of Jesus leading his people to a new way of living, to a new way of being, to a new way of being in the presence of God. Jesus continues as he's crying out, If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Save is that word, sozo. It's this idea of redemption and lift. It's this idea of wholeness and completeness, not just the saving of your soul, but the saving of every single area of your life. This idea of shalom, that your life would look and be put together just the way God would have it, that every single area of your life would be filled with God's peace. He came to save the world. He does continue. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn that person on the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. And watch this, this verse 50. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. I love that idea that every command the Father gives leads us to eternal life. Important to note that this conception of eternal life was not just temporal in nature. It wasn't just an extended forever into infinity existence. But it was actually a, a, a quality of life. That kind of life that when you're living, you just think, man, my relationships are at peace. I'm not in want, and I'm not in lack. My body, my health is put together. I feel like my, my relationship with God is in sync because God's favor is upon me. It's this idea of every single area of your life, again, being put together. Eternal life, not just quantity, but quality of life. And I love the idea that when God gives commands, it's not just for quantity of life and not just to judge. It's actually for our benefit. Reminds me of my parents growing up. I tell my dad all the time, Dad, you gave me lots of great advice and I didn't take any of it. <laughs> and the reason I say this, my dad would oftentimes give me advice that was not just for his benefit, but really for mine. That my friendships would get along better. That my relationships with teachers would be smoother. That my moving out to California would go better. It was this idea that my parents' commands to me were not just so I would look good in front of their friends for them, but my parents would give me commands as a light to help lead me through life towards a certain quality of life. And so I ask you the question this morning as we kind of begin to close here and, and turn towards communion. Are you listening to the cry of Jesus? Are you listening to this loud, dynamic, bold voice that says everything I have come and done and everything that I have come to say is that you might be saved. 
Are you hearing the cry of Jesus this morning? That every command from the Father leads to eternal life. And if you're doling your ears to it, if you're blinding your eyes to it, would you turn back to the Father this morning? For some of you, you've been following Jesus for a long time. And there are some areas of your life, whether it's in your marriage, in your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your parents, relationships with coworkers and bosses, you know that there is something that needs to be done because you hear the words of Jesus inviting you to act in a certain way, but you've begun a desertion away from the Father. And you're, you're actually not going towards life, you're going away from it. If that's you this morning, this morning is a great morning to say, Jesus, I hear you crying out to me. Would you help me to return? And for some of you, you're here and a friend invited you, a neighbor invited you, a coworker invited you, and you haven't crossed the threshold of faith. You're still just kind of checking this out. It might be somebody here on site, and you might have found us on YouTube, and you're watching online right now. But if that's you, this morning is a great morning to listen to the words of Jesus, to believe that he is the light that leads, he is the name that saves, and he is the voice that leads us to eternal life. So my final question for us this morning is, are you listening to Jesus as he speaks to us through his word? Let's pray together. Jesus, we, um, we pause for just a moment. And we are um, maybe a bit sobered by these words that sometimes our hard-heartedness, our blindedness, our unwillingness to listen is actually of our own doing, that we don't practice understanding, we don't practice seeing, we don't practice listening, and therefore we can't. And so, Lord, if that's any of us here, we just ask you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come and soften our hearts? Come and open our ears. Come and make us attentive to you once again. And for those of us here this morning, that we've crossed the threshold of faith, but there's somebody in our life, it could even be a spouse, could be our parents, could be our kids, could be a coworker, a neighbor, that we have faith in you, but there's just folks that we value their approval more than yours. We just ask you, Lord, would you fill us with courage? Would you teach us to value you more than the validation and the honor of those around us? And finally, Lord, we want to hear you well this morning. As your voice cries out to us from your gospel, from these words to us here, we want to respond. So, Lord, as you are the light, help us to follow you. As you are the one that saves, help us to surrender to you. And as you are the one with the command that leads us to eternal life, would you help us to obey you? It's in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.